You may be seated. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Nehemiah chapter 7. Nehemiah chapter 7. Today we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 73 through the, the end of the chapter. Before we do, though, let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you, Lord, so much that we could once again look at your word like we did at Sunday school, to be reminded of, of who you are and what you have done for us as, as your people. Uh, Lord, give us ears to hear, to not just hear the words, but Lord, to take to heart the things that we hear. God, may you stir our affections and, and change our wills, Lord, to love you more. Uh, God, to delight in you. Uh, Father, may we grow in intimacy and love for you as you have loved us and you know us completely. Lord, I, I also want to pray uh, that if there be any today who do not know you, that you may open their their ears that they may receive you by faith and know what it means to be a child of God and to have the delight of knowing you. We thank you and pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, there are uh, some places in the world that to the people of that place, who you are and where you're from is very important, right? Maybe you've been in places like that. I've spent a number of years in the South. As a matter of fact, that's where I, I met my wife. So I'm very endeared to the South uh, of our country. But in the South, it matters an awful lot who you're related to and where you're from. As a matter of fact, there's sometimes certain cultural pride in that, and let alone maybe certain benefit that comes along with that. But I think even in the Midwest, it's true to some degree that family and heritage is important, but that's not necessarily true in all parts of the country. But I think what we'll see today as we look at our text is it does matter who you are and where you're from. Uh, so we're gonna see as we look at uh, Nehemiah chapter seven. And so as we come to our text today, what you're going to, <laughs> to notice is that this is mostly names. Uh, that it's uh, another list of names, names that, that have already appeared. For those of you that's been with us the whole time in our study of Ezra and Nehemiah, it's, it's uh, a similar list to that of Ezra chapter 2. And, and I like what uh, Derek Thomas said. I think he sort of states this very well. He's a, a PCA pastor, uh, uh, writer of commentaries and stuff. And this is what he said. He goes, reading the list, uh, excuse me, reading the list through the first time, that is in Ezra chapter 2, uh, was a Herculean task in pronunciation and perseverance. He goes, reading it through a second time could very well test our patience to the limit. Because for us, these are a bunch of unfamiliar names that are very difficult to pronounce and we don't know who these people are. And it would be very easy to skip over this. As a matter of fact, just for fun and giggles, I sort of looked up a bunch of sermons by different pastors uh, to see how they handled this and many pastors just sort of jump over this section they just go right to chapter 8 it just is so much easier to deal with that but I, I think the thing we have to remember is just because a passage is difficult doesn't mean it's not the inspired 
infallible, inerrant Word of God. And so we want to look at this this morning. And as we do, I want us to see uh, that uh, there's several things that's in this passage. First of all, we see God's gift of His people. We see God's gift of His people. Now, you might recall from last week that where we sort of ended is, is that the wall was completed. Finally, after a number of chapters, uh, it was completed. The doors were hung. The singers and, and the guards were in place. Uh, the appointment of, of those who would oversee the city was in place. And, and yet, not many people lived in the city. There were a few houses and stuff, but, but not that many. And then we read in our text today in verse 5, then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at first. And I found written in it, these were the people of the providence who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar and the king of Babylon had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. Now, what we see here is, is that God is at work in, in Nehemiah's heart. And, and he's giving him, in essence, a, a new task to do, as we'll see in a minute. But it's because the Lord has played this in his heart that Nehemiah finds this 90-year-old list of exiles who returned to Jerusalem at the very beginning, back in Ezra chapter 2. And God lays it on Nehemiah's heart to take a census. Now, in, in one sense that ought not to sound odd, and in another sense it should sound very odd. It's, it's not new that we read of people taking census in the Bible and sort of numbering the people and seeing who is there and stuff, um, because it, it has happened before. But this is the only time, at least that I can recall in the Old Testament, where it's approved by God to do this. Um, oftentimes, God condemns that. For example, David in 1 Chronicles 21, David decided to number all of the people. He wanted to see you know, how, how many people he had on his side, how, how big his army is. You know, it was sort of a sense in which he was trusting in chariots and horses and his earthly resources and stuff. But that was not God's will. As a matter of fact, God condemns it. Uh, we read actually in 1 Chronicles 21.1 that it was actually Satan that uh, enticed David to number Israel. And so as a result of David's actions, many Israelites died. But Nehemiah is different than that. It's the opposite. This is a time that God prompts the census. Now, now why? Well, there may be a number of reasons, but partly to show us that God is close to Nehemiah, and Nehemiah is close to God. There's a sense in which God is not done using Nehemiah. Uh, he wants him to, to do uh, further work. And so he communicates this to Nehemiah. But I want you to notice something here in, in this verse, in chapter 7, verse 5. He says, Then my God put it in my heart. I think it's very easy for us just to quickly sort of read over the text and say, yeah, 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 I know what that means. But, but notice that possessive pronoun. It, it makes this very personal. Uh, Nehemiah didn't merely say, God put it in my heart. He said, 
my God put it in my heart. And, and I think if we stop and think about this for a moment, it causes us pause to ask ourselves, how might we describe our relationship with God? Is he just God to you? Or does those pronouns actually matter? Is he my God to you? I mean, it, you know, it was interesting. I sort of started thinking about that and looking at different texts uh, in Scripture, and it, it's amazing how many times you come across that phrase. Um, Exodus chapter 15, verse 2. The, uh, after the Exodus, Moses and the people sang to the Lord after he delivered them. And this is what Moses and the people sang, Exodus 15, 2. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. Or think about the Psalms. How often the Psalms talks about God in a very uh, personal way. David, for example, in Psalm 23, very familiar um, verse says, The Lord is what? My shepherd. I shall not want. He's not just some shepherd out there. He's not just some shepherd that, that I'm aware of. Uh, but there's a relationship. It, 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 there's something that exists. He knows me, and I know him to some degree. Paul in the New Testament, and as he's writing to the Philippians, says the same thing. Philippians 1, verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Or Philippians 4, 19, another familiar passage. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Paul and these other authors think about God in a very personal way. There's a relationship there. And the point that we need to remember is that a Christian doesn't just simply know about God, doesn't just know some things about God, but the Christian knows God. We have experienced Him. There's a relationship there. If I might borrow the language from our Wednesday night prayer time, we understand the greatness of God and the goodness of God as we've seen those things come to play in our lives. And kids and young people, I want to ask you this morning, do you know God or do you simply know things about God? Is, is God a joy to you? Do, you? do you have a relationship with Him? Or, or is it just that you've come to Sunday school and you've heard some stories, you hear Pastor Rick preach and you learn things about God, you're, you're, you have family worship in your home and your parents tell you about God. Is that where your relationship is with God, that you just know things about Him? Or do you know Him? Now, young people, kids, you know, you may know certain people in our church. You may know... Mr. and Mrs. Cardoso. You may know Mr. Short, or you may know Mr. Petrie, or others in our congregation, and you know maybe some things about them, but do you know them that well? Probably not as well as you know your brothers and sisters, right? Because your brothers and sisters, you live with them. You know, you know what irritates them. As a matter of fact, you sometimes do that. You take advantage of that, right? 
and you irritate them because you have a relationship. Uh, but there's that sense in which you live life with them and you know them. And God wants you to know him, young people. God wants him, wants you to know him, to have a relationship with him, not simply to know some things about him. And I would encourage you, whether you're a teenager, whether you're, you're younger, talk to your parents about this and your relationship with God. I'm sure they would love to chat with you about that. Well, Nehemiah, uh, we know that he was a man that knew God's word and he obeyed it, you know, as we've seen over and over again. You remember the time when uh, he was told his life was in danger, so he should flee to the temple. And Nehemiah said, what? No, I can't go to the temple. That's only for the priests to go to. Or, or when uh, God's people were taking advantage of the poor in their midst. Uh, Nehemiah knew to direct them back to God's word and says, no, that's not how God has called us to live. This is what God has said and how we are to function. Repent of your sin. And they did. So Nehemiah was a man who was very familiar with the word of God. He, he, he knew it. He lived it. He sought to obey it. And thus his mind was molded by and trained by God's word to think God's thoughts after him. Nehemiah was one of these men who walked in wisdom. Even if God's word didn't know, didn't specifically say you are to do this or that, uh, Nehemiah knew the mind of God. He knew it through his word and he had been trained through that. And so he sought to follow the Lord. Now, think about it. Nehemiah had completed the task that the Lord had given him in terms of rebuilding the wall. Everything was sort of done. And he could have actually gone back to his work in, as a cupbearer to the king at this point in time. There was nothing more for him to do. I mean, would it not have been much more preferable to go back to a position of prominence and wealth and status rather than dealing with all the drama that comes along with rebuilding the wall or, or, or doing ministry in the name of God. But God shows Nehemiah that there's more that he wants him to do. And that's what we see here in verse 5 in this text. He tells him, this is what I want you to do. Now, this ought to prompt us to ask, how does God lead us in those times of transition? How does God direct us in our paths? Well, this is where we need to be careful because not everything the Bible describes uh, does it prescribe. Now what that means in English is this, not everything that the Bible mentions, that's mentioned in the Bible, is something that we are commanded to do. And so it, we see here that the Lord laid this on Nehemiah's heart to do this. But we need to be careful not to think that every thought or desire that pops into our head is the Lord speaking to us. Uh, every, even Christians can be guilty of breaking the third commandment. Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And yet how often do you hear even Christians today say th something like, well, God put it in my heart to do thus and such. Or God told me to do this or that. I even heard this week that that actually is being used on Christian college campuses as a pickup line where young men will come up to women and say, well, the Lord told me you're supposed to marry me. 
And, and, and the pastor I heard say that, I thought, oh my goodness, I can't believe this. And he said, but I tell my congregation, the young ladies ought to say, well, that's fine, but the Lord hasn't told me that yet either. So when he does, I'll let you know. You know, but sometimes it can even be t twisted that way. Uh, but don't always believe this when you hear it. Um, I think about Deuteronomy chapter 18. If you want to turn there, Deuteronomy 18 uh, some of you may be familiar with this, verses 20 through 22. Um, uh, God is, or Moses is speaking to the people and telling them not to believe every prophet. That there are prophets out there that are saying, I'm speaking in the name of the Lord, but not every, but, um, but they're not. And so he goes, but how do you know who's who? Well, this is what we read in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 20. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, that is in the name of God, uh, that I have commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. So when someone says, the Lord has told me this, and if he is not truly a prophet of God, he is to die. So that's a serious thing to say, the Lord told me thus and such. Um, he goes on and he says, and if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? You know, how do we know when this prophet that stands up and says, God told me to tell you this, how do we know if he's from you or not, Lord? And this is what he said, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Because you see, God is a God who does not lie. He is a God who always keeps his word. And so you can see that that's a person who is not following the Lord. And I think, boy, what would, what, how would it change the, the culture of the church today in America if we applied these standards to that when someone says, well, the Lord laid it on my heart to do this, or the Lord said this. If it didn't come true and we took them out, we stoned them behind the church. I'm assuming that would decrease the number of people who would say, the Lord told me this, right? But anyway, so we need to be careful not to put the words of God on our own lips when he was not the one who spoke them. And just because we see that in Nehemiah's life doesn't mean that that's always the way that God does it today. We do know that he did speak to Nehemiah because it's recorded in his word. But we need to be careful not to apply that to our lives. Now, as we look at chapter 7, we see these people that are listed here um, because here again, the Lord laid it upon Nehemiah's heart to look up these genealogical records. And, and I want to just sort of look over these names very quickly, and I mean very quickly. And I want us to see who was uh, involved in these lists of names. First of all, Nehemiah starts with the leaders of the people in verses 5 through 7. And, and there were to 12 total leaders um, to signify that they represented Israel. It's, so it's not insignificant that it was 12 leaders. And, and they were wanting to signify that Israel is regathered. He's, Israel is being rebuilt or, or reconstituted as God's people. That they were in exile, but they're now back in the land. Israel is whole. There is shalom. That God promised in, in Jeremiah that these things would happen, that the city would be rebuilt and the people would return. And what God says is now happening. 
Secondly, um, the second group we see is in verses 8 through 38. And these are lay Israelites. These are just lay people. They, they're grouped either according to their family. In other words, who are your people, right? Or to their towns of origin, to their place. Where are you all from, right? That's the, the idea that's here. Because those things were, were very important. Third, we see the priests in verses 39 through 42. Uh, God has brought his people back to their place. And he's given them a city. But in the midst of that city, as we saw back in Ezra, there's this temple. And, and that means God is now present with his people again. And it's necessary to minister, you know, on behalf of the people to God. And so God has brought priests to fulfill that role. But not only priests, but fourth, if you look at uh, verses 43 through 45, you see Levites. And, and uh, the fifth group we see are the temple servants in verses 46 through 60. And, and, and these were men who did the labor of maintaining the temple, right? The, both the Levites and, and the temple servants. And then the last group, uh, verse 61 through 65, these are sort of the unclassified people. <laughs> that's, that's my title, that's not an official title. The unclassified people. But these were the people who could not prove where they were from or who their people were. You know, they, they said this is what my genealogy is, but there was no proof. And, and we do know, as we read the Old Testament, that those kind of things are important. Because God gave an inheritance to every tribe. And so they had certain land based on the tribe and the people you were from and where you were from. And so that was very necessary. But especially when it came to serving in, in, in holy matters, like the priesthood or, or temple service, um, you had to prove that you were of the priestly line. And those in verses 61 and following could not prove where they were from. And so uh, we see here people like Tobiah's family, the man who had been opposing Nehemiah, uh, is, is part of this in verse 62. And it was sort of the implication is here that they're sort of, if I could use the word half-breeds, they were partly Jew and, and partly Gentile. Um, and so it's no wonder that Tobiah was um, opposed to the rebuilding of the wall. But these people were excluded from the priesthood and they couldn't fulfill their role, the governor said, until there was a priest who would come who could manage the Urim and Thummim um, and uh, determine whether they really were from the priestly line. Now, what are those things? Uh, well, it's like casting lots or rolling dice to discern uh, what God's will is in the midst of this controversial circumstances. Are these people of the priesthood? Are they not? And God would lead through that. Now, what, what does all that summer, what does that all mean if you sort of summarize it? Well, what it basically means is this, Israel is back. A particular people in a particular place, that God has re-established his people, that God is the giver and keeper of the covenant promises. And God promised that if his people had sinned, which they did, then he would send them to exile. But he also promised that he would bring them back, which he did. Now, as you look at verse 4, you see that the people are just a small group of people living in a big place. But God gives the people of God as a gift to eventually fill Jerusalem. 
uh, as we will see later on. That brings us to our second point. Now, lest you be worried, my first point was my longest point by far. Okay, the other two are, are much shorter. But the second thing we see is God's gift through his people. In verses 66 through 72. God's been working through Nehemiah. Nehemiah has obviously been the leader. There's been others who have led as well. But Nehemiah has been the main guy through which God has been working. But now we see God working through his people. Um, they're just a small group. We read in verse 66. There was 42,360 people. But what's significant is, is that they did not come back empty-handed. They were in exile. They, they, uh, but yet when they returned, they returned with, um, look at verses 67 through 69, servants and singers and horses and mules and donkeys and gold and silver and garments, things that they came to give to the work of the Lord. So they didn't return from exile broke. They went away poor, but they came back in many ways rich as God's people. And God had blessed them in exile. And so they have much to celebrate as they return to see God's work in their midst. So God gave much to his people so that he might give much through them. And God blesses us today in the same way. He blesses us with much so that we might give much, that he might give much through us uh, to his work. Look at verses 70 through 72. Um, you see there that the governor gave to the treasury, that those who were wealthy, those who had status, gave generously, and you'll see the amounts that they gave and, and what it was particularly that they gave. But also you'll notice that the heads of the household, and, and even as it said towards the end, and the rest of the people gave generously as well. And so we see here that everything that the people had came from the hand of God. And as they had freely received of the Lord, they now were freely giving back to the Lord as well and to his people. And so we see here that paradigm of Christian generosity that we see in the New Testament. And as God blesses and, and prospers us, we freely give to the work of his ministry. Now let me just say this. As I, as I say those words, as God blesses and prospers us, what do you think about? I sort of wish this was Sunday school so I could hear your answers. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think oftentimes when we think of that, oh, as God blesses me financially and he prospers us financially, we freely give to the work of his ministry. But 1 Corinthians 16 reminds us uh, how the church at Corinth gave. In 1 Corinthians 16, we read that they gave according to their ability. And then it goes on and says, yet also above and beyond their ability. They were so thankful to the Lord that he had blessed them spiritually that they were compelled to give generously. And that's what we see going on in the book of Nehemiah. That the people knew that they were once an exiled people. But now they were living again in the land. They're back with their inheritance, with their people in their place. They knew the joy of restoration. And so they gave with thankful hearts to the work of the Lord. And the reality is, the more deeply one's heart has been touched by the grace of God, 
the more generous is the spirit that follows. Do you hear that? That the more deeply one's heart has been touched by the grace of God, the more generous is the spirit that follows. It doesn't necessarily mean that person has more money than other people, and so they necessarily can give more, but they just understand what they have received in Jesus Christ, and their hearts are stirred to give generously with what it is that they have. They cannot help in wanting to give to participate in the ministry of God. So God not only gives of His people, but He also gives through His people. But the final thing I want us to see is that God's gift to His people. What is it that He gives to the people? What is the great gift that God gives? Is it the fact that they're alive? Well, yeah, that is a gift. Is it the fact that they could return home to Jerusalem? Well, yes, that's a gift. Uh, is it that they have instead, uh, instead of poverty, they have means? Well, yeah, that's, that's a blessing. Um, maybe it's that they have a city and a temple, a place to call home. And those, that's true too as well. But in some ways, it, it doesn't have to do with what God has done, but what He is still yet to do in their lives as we look at the second half of Nehemiah. It, I, one of the things that struck me is, is I read verse 73. Uh, let me just read that. It says, So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. It almost sounds like you had just end the book right there. That's just a great summary of what has happened thus far. Um, it sort of reminds me of uh, whenever you watch a TV series, you know what I'm talking about unless you don't watch TV. Um, you know, you, you've invested in this TV series that's 10 seasons long, right? And there's all these plots that have developed over these years. You know, of course, you've binge watched this, so you've only been watching it for six months. But, you know, it's been going on for 10 years making these films. And it gets to the end and you get to the, the series finale. And you're thinking what? How are they going to wrap all this up together, right? And you've watched, I don't know how many series where you get to the end and you're like, what? Seriously? That's how you're going to leave it? And you're like, you didn't address any of this. You just stopped it. You know, and you get so upset. But just, you know, think how satisfying it is, though, when you get to that series and they nail it. I mean, they bring it together and you're like, yes, that's the way a series ought to end. And, and you just sort of feel like, that's how I sort of read Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 73. It just sort of sums up everything to this point in such a way that we could just say, yes! And they all lived in their towns and they lived happily ever after. But the question is, is really everything complete? Is everything whole? Is, is everything done? Are the people of God truly home? Is their heart and their lives and their affections, their wills, is it back focused upon the Lord? And the answer is no. Nehemiah 8 actually opens with a whole new set of circumstances that the people of God read the law of God and God begins to work in the hearts of the people, not just on the city and the wall, but upon the hearts of the people. And, and we see that the people of God are are uh, listening and understanding who they are in light of the world in which they live. And they are never truly home in this world. 
The people of God are a pilgrim people passing through this world. And, and, and we can see this as, as we look sort of back to uh, the numbers in Jerusalem. 42,360 people in Jerusalem. They have all the different categories of people, leaders, lay people, priests, etc. But this is just a tiny remnant compared to the Israelites that used to be and the Israelites that would one day be. And for the moment, the temple has been rebuilt, but, but even at that, if we think back to Ezra, I think it was Ezra 2, where they laid the foundation of the temple, and the young people rejoiced that the foundation was laid. But what did the old people do? They wept because they looked at the footprint of the temple, and they're like, really? This is puny. This is tiny. This is not magnificent like the temple used to be. The walls have been rebuilt, but we know as believers post-New Testament that one day these walls will be destroyed again, never to be rebuilt again. And so the hope for God's people is not Jerusalem or any other real estate here on this earth, but that we seek the city that is yet to come, brothers and sisters. Yes, God put it in the heart of Nehemiah to rebuild the city and to count the people, but in the heart of God, there's a far greater city, and there are a far greater people that are being formed. But for the time, we as Christians are pilgrims just passing through this world, heading towards that greater city, that heavenly city. I mean, you think about Christ. Even when he was on earth, uh, he was described this way. Jesus said, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus recognized that his people and his place is not of this world. Uh, Jesus not only sought that city, Jesus actually had the ability to bring about that city. And he did so by coming to earth, to that earthly Jerusalem, but then being crucified on the cross. He who is holy, holy, holy in all his being, he is cast out and condemned, not for what he had done for his sin, but for us and what we had done. He's died on the cross to satisfy the punishment that we deserve for the sins that we have committed against God. And the same words that were on Nehemiah's lips were on Jesus' lips as well. My God, my God. But rather than the Father drawing near to Christ in that moment on the cross, like he did Nehemiah, the Father actually was far away from Jesus. And so Jesus cries out, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was so that we as his people would have a share in his place in that heavenly city. That we could say that the creator of heaven and earth is not simply a God, but we could say today as we worship in 2023 at Kirk of the Plains, he is my God. He is our God. So that the words of the Son on the cross would never have to become our words. 
that we could say that the Father would never leave us nor forsake us, unlike Christ on the cross. So, so though we wander this world, and, and sometimes uh, we're a little lost, it might seem like, or a little bit unsure, not always knowing uh, our place, sometimes feeling like we don't belong, the Word of God says to us from this chapter in Nehemiah 7 that you are a people. You have a people. You have a place. This is God's gift to you. Because what God gives to you ultimately is Himself. He gives you Himself, His Spirit to dwell within you. So when people ask you, where are you from? Or who are your people? You can say, I do belong to a people. And many of those people are sitting right around me in this room. But I belong to a, I belong to a people. And I do belong to a place. But it's not a place here in this world. It's a place in the heavenly Jerusalem where I will be with, yes, God's people, but I will be with God Himself for all eternity. People of God, this morning I want you to walk away with a sense that you have much to be thankful for and to celebrate. I know we hear every week that Christ died on the cross, but He did so to make us a people and to give us a place. And if Israel has a reason to be thankful, if Israel has a reason to give and to be generous, if Israel has a reason to celebrate, how much more do we have that? Not even an amen? Amen! Right? God has given to you great gifts so that He can give through you to the cause of the building of His church. He gives one last gift. If you look at Revelation chapter 3 and verse 12. I'll just close with this. Revelation 3, 12. We read, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of God. Right? Your ancestry is not in question because you are united to Christ. You are his people. You are, are part of that temple. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of God. Then he goes on and he says, never shall he go out of it. In other words, you belong to this place that you will abide in for all eternity. It's not that no one, nothing can snatch you from the hands of Christ. And then he goes on and he says, never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of, the hev out of heaven and my own new name. Brothers and sisters, this is your place. This is your people. This is your God. Rejoice. Amen. Let's bow our heads if we could and reflect upon these wonderful truths for a moment.
our gracious God. Oh, we praise and we thank you, my God, for all that you have given to us in Jesus Christ. Now, Lord, we probably have grown up, most of us, hearing these things from the time that we were little, although maybe we've not comprehend those times from that age. Lord, may we take these things to heart. I pray, Lord, first of all, for our young people, for our kids, that they would not just come to church and know about you, but they would know you, they would love you. God, they would be your children. I pray for us, Lord, that you might examine our hearts and search us and, and know us, O oh God. And if we are just outwardly public professing Christ that you would show us our shortcomings that we must come to him repent of our sins and trust in him but Lord as we know you we pray that we would grow to know you more to love you to delight in you to understand the inheritance as we talked about in Sunday school that we have that, Lord, that would produce the joy in our hearts and the thanksgiving and the gratitude and the praise for who you are and what you have done. Oh, Lord, wake us up if we slumber in our praise and our worship of you, that we may delight in you. We thank you, O oh God, and pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.